If you were a pagan living in ancient times, you would believe in a multitude of gods who battled against one another. That would be your perception of the world. You would fear these gods, knowing that they could really mess up your life if they wished to do so. And so you would offer sacrifices to them in hopes that they might treat you kindly. And even along the way, you would know that sometimes they dole out benefits. And so you'd hope for that. Appease a fertility goddess by abandoning yourself to sensual pleasures at her temple. And she may pleasure you there and send you a bumper crop at harvest. Sacrifice your infant son in the fire to a war god, and that god may well help you defeat your enemies in battle. Now, modern pagans that are all around us usually dispense with the game of creating imaginary gods fashioned in their own likeness that give them what they want, and they're very happy usually to dismiss the whole hassle of animal sacrifice. Yet they similarly spend their lives sacrificing to the gods of self and human reason and wealth and pride and any number of fleshly pursuits. Modern pagans are known, we all are aware, to sacrifice a child or two to the gods of wealth. More than a few have sacrificed a marriage on the altar of sensual infidelity. And on and on it goes. So whether we're ancient or modern pagans, whether worshiping a multitude of warring cosmic gods or competing with a multitude of self-worshippers, whatever it is, the approach is the same. You sacrifice to get what you want. You sacrifice to get what you want. The end of such twisted false worship is always misery and destruction. It can be nothing other. It is a rolling fantasy that eventually crashes into the wall of reality. In contrast to this depraved worldview, Scripture reveals that there is one true and living God. And since He alone is God, He competes with no one. And we could run on that thought for a long time about the implications of that and how we view the world. He competes with no other God. He may compete in our fantasies with other gods of our own making, but in reality, He has no competitors. There is one God. Therefore, He reigns sovereignly over every nation, over every event in human history, and over every inch of the physical universe as Creator and Sustainer. The point is that God reveals His glories and works out His sovereign purposes in time and space, even through the actions of His enemies, because He alone is God. God patiently, persistently, painstakingly knits together the strands of human history 
and he knits that strand of human history with physical location to show his name to be great and greatly to be praised. It's his planet. There are no other gods. And so all is a canvas on which he is bringing about the glory of his name and his saving purposes in this world. This reality is clearly displayed in the history of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Here, God's chosen people, the people of Israel, would erect a temple in which His glory would be displayed. In fact, His glory would here reside behind the Holy of Holies. Here, God's desire for intimate fellowship with His people would be displayed. You can come to Me at My temple. There is a process. You come on my terms, but I welcome you to fellowship. As we come today to Ezra chapter 3, if you'll make your way there in your Bibles, we come to Ezra 3, the history of God's temple in Jerusalem. We remember as a long and involved one. And we come back to that theme here in Ezra 3 today. But remember, going back for some 1,700 years, Genesis 12, God promises the land to Abraham. And then in Genesis 15, remember again, the sovereign God ruling through history and time and place. In Genesis 15, He says, you're going to be 400 years in slavery. In Egypt, you will be in slavery for 400 years. During that time, the people of this land I am promising you will come to a place of such utter corruption as to deserve nothing but extermination. After those 400 years, I will bring you back to this land that I am promising you. And we remember the amazing deliverance of Israel out of the land of Egypt as God redeems His Son, His nation, And they return to the promised land. Eventually, after a long time, God has said and prepared the Israelites, there will be a place where I will put my name. I will identify my worship, my name there on that place. You don't know where it is, but they eventually came to discern through history where that place was as David conquered the Jebusites on Mount Moriah. And then his son Solomon erecting the temple there. And the glory cloud comes to fill that inner sanctum in the temple. God resides resides on Mount Zion in his temple. It's a glorious moment. And we rejoice with all of the years, the centuries that have led to this place. This spot on earth where God's glory is announced and displayed to the nations. This is the one true and living God. But this story just never ends, does it? The story of human sin, its inroads into our hearts, and the attraction to the false gods of this world. And Israel walked through the monarchy in half a millennia of time. Half a millennium of time in sin. Some good kings, some good times, but always turning away from God to embrace the false idols of the heart. Then God's hand of judgment fell. 
First, Israel taken captive to Assyria and dispersed among the nations, intermarrying and essentially disappearing. Some from those tribes coming south to the nation of Judah that lasts a while longer, but eventually Babylon takes the Israelites, the nation of Judah, captive. And as prophesied for 70 years, God's people will be in exile in Babylon, in discipline for their sin. Before this happened, before they were even captive in Babylon, the prophet Isaiah prophesies this, Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 44, Your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by Myself, who says of Cyrus, long before the man is born, He is My shepherd and He shall fulfill all My purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built." And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, let's put ourselves in the scene. When Isaiah is saying this, people in Jerusalem will say, what do you mean she shall be built? She's already built. What do you mean the temple's foundation will be laid? There's a building there. There's this wonderful temple that we already have. But looking ahead God, as the author of history, knows that Israel will be destroyed by Babylon. The temple will be knocked over. And Jerusalem will be left in ruins. It was not God's stresses here. And so in various other places in the prophecy of Isaiah, he stresses it was not that the gods of Babylon had defeated God. There were no gods of Babylon. Actually, God used Babylon to discipline Judah for worshiping false gods. And now, as prophesied, there was a change in power. And the Persian king Cyrus issues a most unlikely decree for Israel to return to the land. And soon Isaiah's prophecy will be realized in the construction of a second temple on Mount Zion. It's an amazing development that we read here in Ezra chapter 3 when we consider the unlikeliness, the unlikelihood of this taking place. It's it's stunning to think on these events, to know what God has prophesied, to know for what He has prepared His people, but to see it take place. We look here in Ezra chapter 3, first at the reconstitution of Israel's sacrificial service. Dealing with the altar primarily, but this whole service at the altar is reconstituted here. It's reinvigorated beginning in chapter 3 verse 1. We read, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So Ezra 1, Cyrus frees the Israelites to return to the land. He returns the sacred vessels that will be used at the temple for worship into their care. Chapter 2, we have the long list of those who came back to the land, renouncing the world that they left, the ease of Babylon to risk this return as a small people. Will they be able to survive? They come back in chapter 2, and here in chapter 3, 
the group is now in the land and assembles. Now, it doesn't mean a lot to us because we don't live in this every day of our lives or every year of our lives, but the seventh month is significant. The seventh month is one of the more sacred months in Israel's civil calendar. It is called Tishri, and it is the first month of of their civil calendar, distinctly sacred for three reasons. On day one is Rosh Hashanah, or New Year's Day. and We hear this in our culture from time to time, the first day of the year for the Israelites, and it is a day devoted to the worship of God to acknowledging that He is the God of time and history. And as our year begins, we give it to Him and to His glory. Secondly, day 10 is the Day of Atonement, the most somber of all celebrations in Israel, where blood is shed for the nation. And when the temple was there applied on the mercy seat, the blood of the sacrifice by the high priest, the Day of Atonement. And then on days 15 through 22 is the Feast of Tabernacles. More on that in a moment. But this is the seventh month. And it's in this seventh month that Israel assembles together, the people now returned, to consider their life before God and their work moving forward as a nation. Verse 2 Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, that's the high priest, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, that just means probably those working with him, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. The significance of this cannot be missed. The altar is built again and according to what God has said in the law of Moses. So they are seeking out what God has revealed some 900 years earlier and saying we must put this into practice again. And they erect this altar of sacrifice. So once again, it stands, and you note there the phrasing, it stands on the place, it stands where uh, this altar was to stand. And we ask, why did this happen? How do you view it? What is your worldview? From the pagan standpoint, what has happened is that the God of Israel has gotten strong again, and he's bumped the gods of Babylon out of the way and is reestablishing his temple. Of course, all of this, and even in Cyrus's view, is just fine. He wanted to honor the God who's situated in that land so that he would gain the blessing from it. But we know actually that sovereignly, lovingly, and purposefully God worked providentially through King Cyrus to establish again God's witness on Mount Zion as the sovereign of the universe. Israel was purposefully identifying with salvation history. But there was also a more simplistic and primal motivation for her that we read about in verse 3. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. The morning and evening sacrifices prescribed in the law. A lamb is offered at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day as the day closes. But you notice here that they're motivated by the fear of the people that surround them. 
I think that's the right way to take that phrase. The fear was on them because of the people. They were intimidated. And so here, offering a sacrifice of prayer, seeking God, they desire His protection and His mercy as there is great threats that surround them. Verse 4, And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. The feast of booths, or the feast of tabernacles, however you put it, on Tishri 15 to 22, was celebrated now. Here's one of those major festivals, and Israel is celebrating. And what a wonderful festival it would be uh, to be part of. It was at the end of harvest, uh, something like our Thanksgiving. All the crops are in, but in warmer weather. And uh, families would, would, would live outside. They would construct a hut that using tree branches and the leaves of trees, and then they would hang on their little hut fruits and vegetables. So there's this pungent aroma everywhere out, and you're smelling earth as you live outside and tent together as families with the harvest in and the beauty of this time of year in Israel. It had to be a, a wonderful event. Camping out together in this place. But Israel's celebrating this as God has established in the law of Moses, as well as establishing other burnt offerings according to Mosaic law. Verse 5, And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, that is, at the first of every month, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. The sacrifice is reestablished. Worship is again happening here at the altar. Sacrifices being offered routinely according to Mosaic stipulation. But, verse 6 says, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. That's all that we've been looking at. But, verse 6, the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So there's just an altar there. No temple. It was good to erect the altar. Good to reestablish the sacrificial system. But God's temple revealing the way in which God was to be approached by those who desire fellowship with Him was not yet built. It was still in ruins. And so, verse 7, they gave money to the masons, that is, those who would carve large blocks out of the side of a hill of rock and stone for the construction of the temple, and the carpenters, it's artificers, might be a better translation, it's just broadly people who had skill in building, uh, used in various ways, whether wood, stone, or metal, but these artificers, and then we see that food and drink and oil is sent to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. This makes perfect sense if we're living in the land and have a, have a, or have ability just to see uh, the map in your mind. But just to the north along the coast is Sidon and Tyre. And in this re region, food didn't grow very well. Arable soil was hard to come by, but it grew rich uh, trees. Uh, deciduous trees, but particularly cedar, which was very hard. It had, a, it had an aroma to it that kept insects away, and so it didn't uh, 
tend to rot, and it was a very hard wood, and it was prized all over the known world for construction purposes. God just providentially put that just to the north of Israel so that they could very easily bring such lumber down and feeding food to those from Tyre and Sidon uh, from the fertile land of Palestine. So with this arrangement, you don't just do this as separate provinces in the Persian Empire. You must get the emperor's approval. Otherwise, the provinces could be working together on something that the emperor doesn't understand, and there could be some plot that's going on. But they have Cyrus's approval for this. And so the beams are sent down on rafts along the coastline of the ocean, south to Joppa, and then work inland to Jerusalem to the west. It's really a stunning development. Just 70 years after Babylon destroyed God's temple here, Babylon is history and God's tiny nation is rebuilding its temple. As, as, as the life of nations goes, this is a blink of the eye. Just for a short time, there is this discipline. And now Israel is building her temple again. And so God has used the Babylonians as a tool to discipline His people. And God uses the Persians as a provider for His people. And that leads us to verse 8 and the rebuilding of the Lord's temple. Which is not completed in this chapter, but is is discussed and begins here. Verse 8 Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jazadak made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They made a beginning. What does that mean? They began work on the temple. Work that would not be completed at this time, but they have reinstituted the work of the priests. Continuing on there in verse 8, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. 20-year-old supervisors, it's a little scary as a concept, but there's not a lot of people. And they are the Levites, and there aren't many of them, so they have to go down to age 20 to find supervisors for this work. In verse 9, Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They got it. They saw what was happening. They realized the significance of this. And they lift their voices in shouting and praise to God. They're thrilled. There are trumpets that are sounded here. Don't think shofar, which is often what we should think of with trumpets in the Old Testament. But 
These were actually straight, long metal trumpets fashioned out of, uh, from metal and uh, sounded a, a brass, a, a brassy, brash sound, a, an alarming sound, a rejoicing sound here. Symbols, we have no idea of the size. I kind of think John Philip Sousa, probably not. Uh, most likely like tambourine-type symbols that would be played. But they're making noise, and they're rejoicing. And the key is that God's people are worshiping God for two things. What is it? What does it say? What is the psalm indicating? God's goodness. They saw the goodness of the Lord. And secondly, God's steadfast love. That is His covenant loyalty to His people. His enduring, never-ending love. We deserved to be exterminated as a people. But our loving Father did discipline us. But He's brought us back here. In covenantal, loyal love, He is sticking with His people. Building them up and encouraging them in the faith. And they celebrate this truth in song. Songs of God's people being lifted to the glory of God on Mount Zion again. And it's a radically distinct view of the divine in contrast to the ancient pagans and modern pagans. This is a God, not, who, not a God who is arbitrary. Not a God who squashes you for no reason at all. Not a God you have to keep appeasing because He might get irritated with you and destroy you, but a God of covenant loyalty. A God who loves His people like no other father has ever loved His children. He has disciplined them. They have suffered. It has been difficult. It is still difficult. But they celebrate the goodness and the steadfast, loyal love of God. In the airspace of the former temple, the glory of God's holy name is again being praised in exuberant song on the heights of Mount Zion. And I wonder of each of us today, do we recognize this God? This God of goodness, this God of steadfast, loyal love. Do we recognize that this is who He is? It's not a matter ultimately of how we perceive Him or what we want God to be. It is a matter of what He reveals. And what He reveals over and again in this world is that He is a God of judgment and severity and discipline because He's just. And is also all the time a God of steadfast, loyal, gracious, dependent love. Dependable love. This is who our God is. I, I'm so thankful that He reveals Himself this way because we might think it was too good to be true. But when we see Israel singing at an altar on top of that hill, we have proof it's not too good to be true. It's the beauty of the truth that He's revealed. A God of goodness and a God of steadfast, loyal love to His people. They're singing, they are shouting, their voices are echoing through the valleys that surround Jerusalem. And one of the reasons, I think certainly, is they recognize the historical significance of this moment. And I believe that the author of this book 
is also drawing out that connection very notably as we understand how Hebrew narratives work, where there is repetitive phrasing, there is often an emphasis that is intended. And there is massive repetitive phrasing in this account of the establishment of the second temple with the first temple. Notice this in these slides. In both, here we're looking on the left column is what we're considering today in Ezra 3, And then in the right column, we'll look at the establishment of the first temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. In both, God's people gave food and drink and oil. In both, they work with the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring wood for the temple. They bring these from the Phoenician coast, bring cedar trees under both temples, and both come by sea to Joppa, to the very same location to work their way up. I needed to pay rent for a little more space there, didn't I? You can see it. Both begin in the second month. Both appoint the Levites to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. In both accounts, they sang responsively antiphonally, a choir divided in half, one singing back and forth in response to one another. Here in this place, in Ezra 3, in that place, they praised the Lord equally. And then, saying this, He is good, His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And in the first temple, this was the song, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Now it's un I mean, there's no question about it that as you're working on a temple in the very same place, there's going to be some linkage, some connections, because you're building the same basic idea of building on the same spot. But this is too much linkage to just be coincidental. I believe that what is being said here by the author and what, is, what God is revealing in this text is the God of history, of time and place is at work. There's a developing spiral. History doesn't circle around going nowhere. It doesn't go straight up in one straight line on the graph. But it spirals upward and forward And we come back in that spiral here to another connecting point where God makes His glory known in the establishment of this temple. This is an important spot on earth. It's here that God reveals Himself in a unique way that the nations can look to see who God is. And here again His people sing. Verse 12, But many of the priests And Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house. All right, this is weird. They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of this house being laid. While at the same time, many others are shouting aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. This is a strange scene. There's people rejoicing and shouting with joy and gladness for what God has done. It's 
It's almost like they're saying if, the, if we were silent, the rocks would sing out. Then there's these people weeping out loud. What are they doing? What's going on here? We have to say, first of all, this a little bit of bridge work to the, between the cultures. The Israelites had no problem crying out loud. They had no problem demonstrating. They were very demonstrable in their emotions, their emotional expressions. So to see anyone weeping loudly and crying was not unusual in that setting. It's, um, we in our culture tend to be far more cautious with our expressions. We see it as a virtue to check our emotions, and on some level that's a good thing at some places, but crying rejoicing, uh, being too exuberant or being too emotional in our tears. We, we kind of look down on that. It's all pretty silly, honestly, and the Jews would have been the first to tell us it's pretty silly, but these men are weeping because they see, I think, that this temple will not measure up to the splendor of Solomon's temple. God is at work. He's restored his people, but there's no monarchy. Right now there's no temple. But looking at the foundations of it, it's not going to be that impressive. Nothing like what Solomon built. It was a reminder then to them of the bitter discipline that she had suffered, that Israel had suffered at the hands of the Babylonians and the Assyrians before them. And I think their zeal for the glory of God to shine forth from Zion was disappointed. And we might, from our standpoint, be able to go to them and instruct them the size of the building the amount of money that's placed in is really not that important. But seeing it from their standpoint, the physical universe is significant, this place is significant, and this building needs to be impressive. And so they cried. They wept. And at the same time, there's these others that are shouting for joy. The noise of their celebration was so loud as to be heard far off in the distance. So he asked the question, well, who's right? Should they be crying or should they be celebrating? And I think the answer is yes. They're both right. They both have a point. Israel lacked the resources available to David and Solomon when they built the first temple. And this is a reminder that Israel had been disciplined. The monarchy was over. The kingdom of God on earth had suffered a significant setback. And so to be weeping in this place is appropriate in response. On the other hand, Israel was rebuilding God's temple. As Israel left Egypt, so she now left Babylon. As Israel had As Israel had left Egypt, so she's leaving Babylon. As Israel had conquered Jerusalem under David, so she finds herself now again on the Holy Mount, occupying the city. And land and people and temple had come together again. Salvation history was back on track. This is the place God had marked for his name to be glorified, and they were back in business. It was time to celebrate. It was time to see what God was doing. So we might parallel this to 
an older generation who experiences something that's very good and they look back to as something very special and a younger generation who comes after that's all been lost and sees some lesser thing take place but rejoices in it. So here the older generation upset because they had seen the first temple. The younger generation rejoicing because they'd never had it to compare with what was being built now. The key is that God's glory and saving grace was being declared on the hill. And so if we were going to tip the balance one way or the other, I think the responses of both are right. They're reflecting the truth. But maybe on some level we want to tip the balance to the younger generation. Here who sees what has happened and the good as they move forward. It was time to sing. It was time to rejoice in the goodness and steadfast love of God at the place where He chose to place His name. And probably drawing right from that context on the screen here, Psalm 126, is this response. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Think this is a dream come true. That God had brought His people again to this hill. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the nations are talking about us up here. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us indeed. And we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Like streams in the dry Negev that sometimes crop up because of rains in other places and rush through the dry land to provide life. Oh, do that here. We are so dry. We are so forgotten. We are so small. Pour out your blessing. Israel had gone into exile, weeping in discipline. She had returned with singing in restoration. This was a good day. This was a grand and glorious scene. And Israel rejoices. I probably speak to a number here today, and you go, what on earth does this have to do with me? Good for them. If you haven't noticed, Israel's got some other issues to deal with right now. This is ancient history. It's all over. It's done. Why does this have anything to do with me, and why am I enduring this historical lesson? If that's your response to this, I would say to you, it's staring you right in the face. The significance to you is staring you right in the face. It's situated on a prominent hill in the holy city. The significance of it is this is primitive, certainly, but this is a revelation of who God is. We see how He operates. We learn who He is. We understand how of His power and His love. And we come to understand that there are no competitors 
slowly, meticulously revealing who He is in His love for His people and through the strivings of the nations, God reveals Himself as the one true and living God. The second thing that's staring us in the face here are our our idolatries. We make sacrifices to get what we want. We think that if I give up something smaller, I'll get something greater, seeking to manipulate the universe. Wanting, getting, attracting, even sacrificing to get what we want. And that approach leads to nothing but emptiness and spiritual deprivation. It brings no satisfaction past the moment. What's also looking at us here is God is in the business of delivering sinners from their rebellion against Him and His commands. There is a God out there who is seeking to draw us into fellowship with Him, and we see that we must approach Him on His terms. But what happens with so many people is they get so used to dealing with false gods by making small sacrifices to get what they want out of those gods that they begin to deal with the true God the same way and think that if I come to church, if I do some good things, God will give me blessings that I want more than I really want God, honestly. And what we do is we worship God in a syncretistic manner as if He is some idol. But what stares us in the face on this hill is an altar. But as we understand the history of Israel, the purpose of this altar is not so that we can lay something down to get something we like that we just want in our own fleshly pleasures. This altar is here for atonement. This altar is here to provide the forgiveness of sins. That is a radically different approach. Certainly with pagans, there's a guilty conscience. And there are times, sometimes, when they sought the gods knowing that they were guilty. But here we find a unique provision of atonement. Since the wages of sin is death, a sacrifice must be offered in the place of sinners for our forgiveness. And as salvation history unfolds, we come to recognize, in fact, the message was preached in the songs that we sang this morning. Just bring all of that message here to bear. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's perfect Son, who becomes the Lamb of God, He is offered on this mount, on the cross, to make atonement for sin. All of this tabernacle setting is pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice who is Christ. Here in the death of Jesus, the sins of all who place their faith and trust in His sacrificial death are forgiven. We've read this morning earlier, we sang this morning earlier of the freedom from sin. This freedom is provided ultimately by this ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that altar stands on that hill to say, God will be approached on His terms. And His terms start with the forgiveness of sins. How wonderful it is that we don't make some petty, small, ridiculous sacrifice 
But God steps in for us and provides the perfect sacrifice to provide forgiveness of sin for time and eternity. And the second thing that will stand on this hill and is mentioned here in Ezra 3 is the temple, which draws us past the sacrifice as you approach the temple. You come first to the altar. That's important. It stands right in your way. It's not set off to the side so that you can walk down the center aisle. It stands in the center aisle. And that altar stops the sinner in his place and says there must be atonement for sin to approach this God. But once that sacrifice is made, now there is a welcome into the temple itself. Of course, in that earlier day, that was only for the priest to present a an important lesson. But now through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that veil that separated the presence of God has been decimated. And we can, through the blood of Christ, walk into the inner sanctum. What that temple speaks of is fellowship with God. It's not something you really had. It's not something that you really have with the false gods of this world. It's not fellowship. I get what I want. I get some momentary pleasure that often comes with a great pain in the end. But I get what I want in pleasure. I don't fellowship with God. But the God of this hill is the God of the universe, and He calls us to fellowship with Him as a father of goodness and steadfast, loyal love. I can't enter that fellowship apart from sacrifice. But once the sacrifice is made and faith and trust in it has been placed, now I can come into a place of fellowship with this Lord of heaven and earth. And for those of us who have placed our faith in that message, we gather together here, as we read earlier, as a kingdom of priests. Not through birthright, but through the new birth. We come to assemble. We come to give. We come to worship as the people of old did. But now our task, like them also then, is to keep the worship of God alive. We gather here on the Lord's Day to do this. We're not on that hill, but we gather as the new temple of God to proclaim His glories and His goodness. We gather as a kingdom of priests to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. On this side of the cross, we now form that new temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. And we lift our voices in praise such that they ring out in glad proclamation. That's who we are as the people of God at this point in salvation history. So we look back to Ezra. It has so much to do with us. We look to our day and the connections that are there. But we can also look forward And know that this story isn't over. I point you back to Isaiah the prophet. Chapter 2, he says this. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So we've been talking about. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. The most prominent, the most significant, the most powerful place on earth. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Let me tell you, that's not as tourists. That's as worshipers. 
And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We, as we gather here, do so in anticipation of that day. We might link ourselves, for instance, to somebody who had been in Babylonian captivity for 35 years and was looking forward to the day when God would fulfill His promises to build again the temple on Mount Zion. But we look forward into a longer stretch of time until that temple will again be built. I can tell you, it's not there today. That is crystal clear to everybody who moves around it. It's not there. But there will be a day when it will come. First in a false form, but finally in a glorious form. We too are looking for the final temple. I believe literally from which Jesus will reign over the nations. Who will flow to that place for wisdom and for joy in the Lord. We look forward to that time. We anticipate it as a kingdom of priests. I don't know where you are in that journey. This is a glorious God to know. There's none other to know but the God that's sitting in your chair. That's as good as it gets. And that's not good. The only other God in this world is the one we make of ourselves and our own sensual pleasures our own desires, our own selfish purposes. But there is a God of glory who rescues His people from self and sin and destruction and whose temple once announced the glories of His name, whose new living temple does so today in the songs of the church and the life that we live and who will once again establish this temple as the spot on earth where the glory of Christ is seen. We are rich people who have embraced this truth. If you have not, the offer is there. The call of the Spirit is there. Come, place your faith and your trust in the sacrifice for sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. Come today. We'd love to point you there, to guide you there, to help you there. We can't give it to you or sell it to you, but we can show you where we as beggars found bread. Come today. Our Father, we thank You for the wonder of Your saving purposes as we put together this string of historical events. We realize we're very separated from it in one sense, but also realize that we are very much in linkage with what we are seeing here. And what we have sung about today is the victory of the altar, the victory of the cross, where You paid the penalty of our sin. We have seen the victory of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship that we can now have with you. And I pray that we would go from this place motivated to know you better, to grow in faith and obedience as we walk with you, the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Guide to this end and point to saving faith anyone who knows not Christ in this way. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand with me, and just for a few moments in the silence of your own heart, reflect upon this word. Perhaps you've been doubting God's goodness and love.